This is KUAF 91.3, a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. And this is Ozarks at Large for Wednesday, March 9th, 2022. I'm Kyle Kellums. On this afternoon's show, a boom in scholarship recognition at the University of Arkansas more than 30 years ago. Pruitt couldn't have foreseen it at the time, nor likely did anyone at the university, but the mid-1980s proved to be a turning point in the university's engagement in winning nationally and internationally competitive scholarships and in building a scholarly community among undergraduates. We continue our series of episodes from the University of Arkansas's first 150 years. And in about three and a half minutes, Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich reports on snakes and prescribed burns in the Ozarks. Members of the Arkansas House and Senate have given final approval to the state's $6 billion budget for the coming fiscal year. The Revenue Stabilization Act passed in both chambers by wide margins yesterday. At issue in the Senate was a subset of the budget to cover the cost of a proposed expansion of a state prison in North Arkansas. Democrat Senator Clark Tucker of Little Rock argued the cost of the 498-bed expansion will ultimately run much higher than the $75 million needed for construction. So over the next decade, we will spend a couple hundred million dollars to incarcerate 498 Arkansans. And my question is whether that's the best use of that money, particularly when you think about the other costs on top of that. After someone gets out, which most do, they're five times as likely to be unemployed. They're much, much more likely to have a major health issue. And so there are other burdens on society besides just the cost to incarcerate someone. Governor Asa Hutchinson has said the expansion is needed to help reduce the roughly 2,300 state prison inmates currently being held in county jails because of overcrowding. Funding for the expansion must be approved by the state legislative council at a later date. As the fiscal session of the Arkansas legislature wraps up, Governor Asa Hutchinson signed two bills into law related to law enforcement pay. One bill provides a one-time bonus of $5,000 to all city and county law enforcement officers, as well as parole and probation officers. The other, Governor Hutchinson says, provides funding for a grant program to help law enforcement agencies buy new equipment. And this is for our cities and our counties and our law enforcement officers that we are funding $10 million for grants for body cameras, for bulletproof vests, and other equipment that will build community confidence and professionalism of our law enforcement officers. The bill also raises the starting salary of state troopers from about $42,000 to $54,000 per year. The bills stem from recommendations made by a task force formed by the governor in the wake of the killing of George Floyd by Minneapolis police in 2020. And the number of people hospitalized with COVID-19 in Northwest Arkansas hospitals continues to drop. The Northwest Arkansas Council last night with their report showed 29 such patients in Washington and Benton counties. That's three fewer than 24 hours previously. This is Ozarks at Large. A University of Arkansas ecologist is measuring how Arkansas prairie snakes are harmed by prescribed fire. Intentional seasonal burns to encourage native prairie habitat to flourish. 
Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich takes us to Woolsey Wet Prairie in East Fayetteville to explain further. Leopard frogs grunt, spring peepers trill, and chorus frogs click on a wetland inside Woolsey Prairie this warm late winter morning. J.D. Wilson scans the horizon, listening. He's an associate professor of biology at the University of Arkansas, an ecologist and herpetologist who studies snakes, salamanders, frogs, and turtles, mostly conservation research, a good bit of it on Ozark's prairies. Because prairie habitats are some of our most endangered habitats um, in this area, and a lot of the species there are very unique. We also um, do a lot of work with forestry, sustainable forestry, um, invasive species. Um, so usually there's a conservation angle, but of course we're also interested in the basic biology of these animals, especially since many of them are not very well understood. They're so good at hiding from us that we often don't know even where they are, let alone uh, much about how they work. Wilson and his graduate students have been studying this rare 40-acre tall grass wet prairie remnant restored by the city of Fayetteville and now a public access preserve to understand how prairie snakes withstand prescribed fire. Woolsey Prairie was burned just a few weeks ago. Such intentional seasonal burns ignited once a year or every few years eradicate invasive grasses, trees, and plants, allowing native prairie grasses and flowers to thrive. Part of what we've been doing here is doing surveys after burns to look for um, dead animals, uh, particularly snakes. Snakes seem to be particularly prone to mortality in burns because they can't get up and fly away like a bird can. Um, and so we're trying to determine what time of year, what weather conditions um, are best for minimizing snake mortality in these systems. Wilson walks slowly across the scorched earth. If you look very closely at the ground, you see a little bit of charred vegetation, but already most of the ash has settled. That, of course, um, is important in terms of returning nutrients to the soil. And in, you know, we're already starting to see little bits of green with this warm weather, but in just a couple of weeks, this place is gonna just explode with new plant growth. Um, that's one reason why prairies, they're, they're fire adapted. So things like grasses, you can burn the top off just fine. And the plant not only stays alive, but actually um, is invigorated by that nutrient release and canopy op opening up the canopy so they get sun. And you know, within a month or so, we'll have beautiful bright green grass, wildflowers coming back. Um, many of our annual plant species, especially the flowers, um, need that open bare soil created by the fire to sprout and germinate. And if there's too much vegetation, they won't, they won't start to grow. So yeah, in just a couple of weeks, not only would you not know that a burn happened, but it will look more lush than it would have if it hadn't burned. So just how do snakes survive a prairie fire? You know, wildlife is very aware of their habitat around them. So they know when it's dry or when there's a large thunderstorm that might create lightning strikes. Um, but they're also very good at sensing, you know, smelling smoke. They definitely know what's going on. Um, there's a question about, you know, what is the, that's a, a very open topic in uh, habitat management is when is the right time to burn? Wilson walks to a muddy field adjacent to a constructed farm pond and crouches down near some mud mounds. Okay, so here's a, here's a good uh, burrowing crayfish burrow. So this little hole you see here in the mound is basically created when the crayfish digs his burrow down underground and they dig all the way down till they reach the water table, till they're standing water. And in that process, they bring mud up from underground and create usually a little chimney or it looks like a drip castle 
often um, on top of there. And so this whole landscape here is just Swiss cheese with crawfish burrows, and these are critical places for animals to hide, especially animals like snakes and frogs. And certainly for escaping burns, they're important. A dozen species of snakes live here, he says, all non-venomous, some rare. Um, crayfish snake, garter snake, ribbon snake, and a couple of the water snakes. Uh, we also see uh, king snakes, prairie king snakes are quite common here, um, although they're very good at hiding, but if you know how to find them, they're, they're probably the top predator in terms of snakes in this system. Immediately after spring fires, Wilson and his grad students methodically search this entire prairie using a grid formation to measure snake mortality. We basically go out and we try and do a very thorough survey immediately after the burn. So like the day after, the morning after, I get a whole bunch of my students and volunteers and we set up a grid pattern. You know, we stand you know, a few feet apart and we basically march a grid across the whole restored area here and scan really carefully and try and pick up every animal we find. Wilson says it will take years to collect enough data to determine the best time to intentionally burn but not harm reptiles. For, for snakes particularly, we're, we're seeing that there's this really critical window in late February, early March where we might want to avoid burns or maybe try and do it right after a very cold night, for instance, when they're all down in burrows or underground. Um, we really want to avoid those times like today when it's been 70 degrees for two or three days and um, all the snakes are just coming up and being active. Similar fire regime research on wildlife impacts, he says, is occurring across the country. We're, we're realizing that prescribed fire is absolutely critical, not just to prairies, but to um, pine forests in the southeast, to we're all well aware of the, the uh, wildfire problems in the west. Um, prescribed fire can help alleviate some of that as well as improve the habitat. Um, in terms of documenting snake mortality, there aren't a lot of studies that have done this before. So this is very novel in terms of creating a data set where we can look across many years at how um, mortality might vary. And with USDA Forest Service, national and state parks and prairie preserves conducting more and more prescribed burns, Wilson's research and others will help to preserve wildlife from collateral injury and death. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Jacqueline Froelich. Quick reminder, we'll spring forward Sunday as we move clocks up for daylight savings time. That is not the only indication. Friday's forecast of possible sleet and snow notwithstanding, that spring is approaching. The Bella Vista Farmers Market announced this morning its first session of 2022 will be April 24th in the parking lot of the Village Center on West Lancashire Boulevard. The market will operate each Sunday from 9 until 2 through late October. And of course, with spring comes spring break. If you're seeking something to do with a spring breaker in your family, be advised that the Scott Family Amazium in Bentonville will do something unusual this month. Open up on a couple of Tuesdays. The museum will welcome visitors on Tuesday the 15th and again Tuesday the 22nd from 10 until 5 each day. After that, they'll return to closing on Tuesdays beginning March 29th. Ozarks at Large is underwritten, in part, by the Walton Family Charitable Support Foundation. KUAF is supported by Butterfield Trail Village, a Northwest Arkansas retirement community catering to active lifestyles and resident well-being, offering apartments to village homes, plus a daily calendar of activities and events. ButterfieldTrailVillage.org for more. This is Ozarks at Large. This year's University of Arkansas Law Symposium, taking place Saturday, is putting a focus on a legal discipline not among the most discussed segments of the law, 
construction. Construction Law in the Legal Academy is taking place Saturday, and it will offer speakers discussing a fast-growing and important element of legal study. Carl Serco, a professor of law at the University of Arkansas, teaches construction law, and he's part of the symposium's guiding force. I had just started practicing law in Kansas City, and the Hyatt Hotel Skywalk collapse occurred. 114 people died in that instance. So, so once in a while, when something like that happens or the Surfside Florida condo collapse, people recognize how important construction and construction law can be. Unfortunate high-profile disasters aside, construction law can be an out-of-sight, out-of-mind matter for most of us. In fact, Serco says the discipline can be the same for many in the legal profession. Most law professors don't think of construction law as a distinct specialty, but for decades, the practicing bar has recognized construction law as a very distinct specialty that involves special characteristics, uh, special legislation and regulation and, and legal doctrine. And what's also interesting is that the United States is far behind a couple of other countries, uh, in, including uh, England and Australia, in recognizing construction law as an academic specialty. One of the goals of Saturday's symposium is to help elevate the standing of construction law in law school curricula and among law school scholars. Serco says there are about 35,000 attorneys in the United States claiming to specialize in construction law. But Justin Gunderman, a third-year law student who, as symposium editor of the Law Review at the University of Arkansas, is part of the organizing team for this weekend, says most of his peers when asked about their legal concentrations, answer with a handful of similar answers. And those answers don't include construction law. Family law, criminal law, immigration. And as far as the class goes, you know, we only have, I think, one professor, and that's Professor Serka, who teaches construction law pretty regularly at the law school. So it's not a class that, or not a subject that we kind of think about regularly. But it's something that I think has become more thought about, especially as more people take construction law to class as well. But Professor Carl Serco says there are plenty of reasons to become acquainted with construction law. There is high demand for people with construction law expertise. He says a burgeoning set of issues dealing with sustainability, the built environment, and climate change part of that demand, as is the fact that construction regulations can vary from state to state and from country to country. He says the first thing he covers in his law construction class is just how many different perspectives and incentives are involved in a construction project. We talk about something called project delivery systems, which means the contractual structures that lawyers and their clients develop to regulate the interdependent relationships on a construction project. As you would imagine, any construction project, even a residential construction project, probably involves a dozen or more participants. And if we go up to a commercial project or an industrial project, it may be 100 or more and coordinating those relationships is a very complicated process. Because of those possible complications, he says the construction industry has developed specialized dispute resolution procedures. Construction projects, he says, often involve high risk in uncertain circumstances over an extended duration, which can lead to disputes, and disputes, at worst, can lead to everything stopping. And everybody loses. So the construction industry tends to use mediation, arbitration, or some even more specialized processes to try to solve problems as they develop 
without stopping the project. And that's one place where an attorney with construction law experience can step in and help. Justin Gunderman, the law symposium editor and third-year law student, says while he's not planning a career in construction law, he understands how an understanding of the principles can help a young lawyer and a young lawyer's resume. General practice areas of law, if you wanted to work in a law firm that has that, it wouldn't be a bad idea to have some construction law background or knowledge because it's probably going to come up, especially if you work at a big law firm or bigger city where a lot of these developments are going to be taking place. Really, just a drive through downtown Bentonville with construction on seemingly every corner can be a reminder of just how many construction matters there can be in just one place. And there are different rules for public construction projects like roads or government buildings. And Professor Serco says technology keeps changing the rules, too. Now, if, for example, you have a difficult-to-reach, dangerous area in a construction project that needs to be inspected, we can send a drone up, and the drone can do the inspection. The 2022 Arkansas Law Symposium, titled Construction Law in the Legal Academy, is Saturday. Registration is free. It's available by following links through the law.uark.edu website. We also have a link at ozarksatlarge.com. And this weekend's symposium is co-sponsored by the University of Arkansas College of Engineering. When you turn on KUAF, you hear breaking news, immersive stories from around the world, and even voices from your own community. You turn to KUAF for insights, information, and entertainment. And this spring, KUAF is turning to you. We're raising money at the end of March to keep the public radio you hear every day on the air. Be part of our spring on-air fundraiser, March 28th through April 1st, and make a difference to your public radio station. The high school basketball state championship games in Arkansas begin tomorrow afternoon. By the end of the games Saturday night, 12 different trophies will have been awarded. All games will be televised by Arkansas PBS. Thursday night, two area teams will play for 6A championships. The Fort Smith Northside girls face North Little Rock tomorrow night at 6, and the Bentonville boys meet North Little Rock at 645 tomorrow night. And the Farmington girls are also playing for a state title. They'll meet Nashville for the 4A championship Saturday night at 6. All of these games are being played in Hot Springs. If you're a supporter of public radio, why? Think about it for a moment. You support so many groups and individuals for the role they play in our local communities, and you know that KUAF has filled that role for over 37 years with programs like Ozarks at Large, The Pick and Post, or The Community Spotlight, or maybe the factual, in-depth, trustworthy news and information from NPR is why you give to your public radio station. What's the reason you support KUAF? We really want to know. You can use the Connect button on the KUAF app for iPhone to instantly leave your message, or you can call the KUAF Connect line, 479-575-6577. That's 575-6577. KUAF Connect, connecting you to your community and beyond. We'd love to hear from you. Just call the Connect line at 575-6577. This is a Wednesday edition of Ozarks at Large. The first 150 years of the University of Arkansas is based mostly in education, learning, and part of that particular history includes studying abroad and scholarships to let students study here and far. Those are the elements for the basis of the latest inspection of the UA's history from Charlie Allison. Charlie is the executive editor of University Relations at the U of A. Lisa Pruitt was six generations deep in Newton County. 
when she came to the University of Arkansas as a first-generation college student in the early 1980s. She grew up on a farm in the rugged, narrow valley of the Little Buffalo River, hemmed in by a forest of hickory, sycamore, and cedar. Life on the farm meant hard chores on a daily basis, but they led to, as she put it, a really wicked work ethic, one that manifested in her high school studies in nearby Jasper. Now, education in Jasper at that time could also be described as narrow. For five years, from seventh grade through her junior year, she was taught English by one person, Herbert Totten, who as a younger man had officiated at the wedding of Lisa's parents. He retired after 33 years of teaching, and a new English teacher, Lena Boswell, arrived for Pruitt's senior year. Boswell took her classes beyond grammar and introduced her students to the literature of English. Pruitt hardly knew how to study it. She loved reading, but had never thought about the study of writing as an academic exercise. She said, quote, Mrs. Boswell exposed us to literature, and I remember feeling encouraged by her. For Lisa, it was like climbing out of the valley and standing on a bluff looking over the entire world. Going to the university broadened that view even wider. Along with the required courses for her degree, she took electives such as Victorian and modern literature, taught by Professor Lina Lee Montgomery, and classical studies taught by Daniel Levine. In her spare time, she served on a variety of student organizations and edited the Razorback Yearbook. In 1985, Lisa Pruitt graduated as one of the university's three valedictorians. Even at that point, though, none of the faculty had thought to suggest that she consider applying for a nationally competitive scholarship, such as the Rhodes or Marshall Scholarship. For that matter, no one had even counseled her on where to apply for law school. She stayed at Arkansas and enrolled in the U of A School of Law, more as a matter of course than any strategy. While in law school, almost by happenstance, a law professor with whom she had never had a course, Morton Gittleman, told someone he thought she should apply for the Marshall Scholarship. She did, and in 1986, she became the first woman in the university's history to receive either of the two prestigious international scholarships, the Marshall or the Rhodes. Pruitt couldn't have foreseen it at the time, nor likely did anyone at the university, but the mid-1980s proved to be a turning point in the university's engagement in winning nationally and internationally competitive scholarships and in building a scholarly community among undergraduates. Neil Carruthers was the first U of A student to win a Rhodes Scholarship. He was awarded the scholarship in 1904, just two years after establishment of the Rhodes. Finishing his degree at Arkansas in 1906, he earned a diploma in economics the next year from Oxford University later becoming an eminent American economist at Princeton, and only suffering a setback in his economic theories when the stock market crashed in 1928. Following Carruthers, 10 more U of A students have won the roads, the most famous being J. William Fulbright, whose time at Oxford and travels upon the European continent engendered his hallmark legislation establishing an American exchange of international scholars. The most recent, of course, is Coleman Warren, named in the fall of 2021. Alongside the Rhodes Scholars, eight students have won the Marshall Scholarship. The majority of these occur before the 1980s, but from 1986 to 2006, three things changed to affect the success of U of A students in winning national and international scholarships. First, the Fulbright College of Arts and Sciences established the university's own prestigious fellowship, the Sturgis Fellowship, to draw top high school students to choose the University of Arkansas. The fellowship was created through a gift from the Dallas-based Roy and Christine Sturgis Charitable and Educational Trust. Initially, the gift created an endowment of $2 million to pay for all expenses for five fellowships. The program's success, though, led to additional gifts in 1992 and 1998, bringing the total program endowment to $10 million. It remains a bedrock of the Fulbright College Honors Program. One of the first applicants to the Sturgis program described the application process itself as an indication that the university was, quote, doing something big. 
Charles King, a student from Springdale, said that the Sturgis program gave its scholars the chance to craft their own educational experience. He said, quote, They wanted to create a set of circumstances to put together an educational experience that would rival any other in the world. It was probably 30 or 40 years ahead of its time. When a committee sat to interview the first applicants for the newly created Sturgis Fellowships, Lisa Pruitt was part of the review committee. As the committee weighed whom to select, one of the faculty members suggested that the panel refrain from considering an applicant who was from a small town, because one couldn't trust the student's grades at a rural high school to be a good indicator of academic rigor. Pruitt piped up and said, hey, I'm from a small town and went to a rural school. (laughs) Point taken. The Sturgis Fellowship was followed by creation of the Bodenhammer Fellowship in 1998 and the Boyer Fellowship in 1999. The Bodenhammer and the Boyer Fellowships were created by alumni. Lee Bodenhammer earned his bachelor's and master's degree at the U of A before going to Harvard for his doctorate. He founded First Variable Life in 1968, which specialized in retirement annuities. The fellowship that he and his wife Beverly created is merit-based and available to students regardless of their field of study. Tommy and Sylvia Boyer established the Boyer Fellowship in 1999 to help a business student who shows financial need and potential to become a business leader. Now, the next thing that happened, a minor boomlet of new national scholarships occurred starting in the mid-1970s and growing significantly in the 1980s with creation of the Truman Scholarship in 1975, the Goldwater and James Madison Scholarships in 1986, the David Boren Scholarship in 1991, and the Udall Scholarship in 1992. Other national awards continued to be created, and when combined, they gave the university an incentive to prepare its top students for applications. Someone started asking, how can high-achieving U of A students gain awareness of these prestigious scholarships early, as well as build a competitive resume? How has the academic curriculum of previous winners affected their selection? What about their public service, their undergraduate research, or their extracurricular activities? No longer would Elisa Pruitt be overlooked. There was enough activity for the university to devote guidance and resources to helping students win these fellowships. In fact, the first person to apply for a Marshall Scholarship after Lisa Pruitt's success was Charles King, and he searched out Pruitt for advice, and then he contacted the most recent Rhodes Scholar, Eric Ware. Both of them offered pointers. King said, quote, They were like the pole vaulters and really made things possible for us coming behind them. They were a living, breathing example. This is the world you can inhabit if you want. His next step meant numerous steps, all of them leading into the bowels of the Arkansas Union to search out a small office where, lore among the Sturgis scholars held, there was a retired professor named Harry Ainsworth who held all the keys to the study abroad kingdom, including applications for prestigious scholarships. King found this lair, and in it was a file cabinet full of pamphlets from around the world. King said, quote, You told him what country or program you were interested in, and he would pull out the pamphlet and let you read it. You couldn't take it with you. It was his only copy. (laughs) Charles King went to Oxford on the Marshall Scholarship and was exhilarated by the method of teaching he found. He said, quote, I loved that someone would give you a 50-page reading list and assign an essay for the next week. As an example, he said, quote, So for next week, why don't you write me an essay on Each Country Gets the Socialism It Deserves? (laughs) He didn't know what the sentence meant. They just throw you in the deep end, he told me. And so the third development in this process of building a university of scholars proved to be a major gift to the university. On a sunny day in April 2002, then-Chancellor John A. White announced that the Walton Family Charitable Support Foundation was making a gift of $300 million to the university, the largest single gift in the history of American higher education at the time. Two-thirds of that gift created and endowed an honors college. $300 
The gift agreement specified breakdowns in how the Honors College money would be endowed, $113 million for student support, $58 million to recruit new scholar teachers for the Honors students, and $29 million for library acquisitions and technology upgrades. The support for Honors students was extensive, with 300 endowed fellowships and another 300 academy scholars. $10 million for undergraduate research and $4 million to support international study for the honor students. Chancellor White said, quote, This unprecedented generosity from the Walton family will transform the University of Arkansas for our students and faculty, and in the process, position us to serve as a powerful engine of economic development and cultural change for the entire state. What the Walton family has done today will improve life in Arkansas for generations to come, and we are grateful beyond words. You know, the word transform can feel a little overused in higher education. But in this case, White was right on the money. Charlie Allison is the executive editor at University Relations at the University of Arkansas, and he delivers stories of the people and events of the first 150 years of the U of A. You can find out more about observations of the university's sesquicentennial at 150.uark.edu. Support for KUAF comes from Malco Theaters, offering reserved seating at the Rogers Cinema Grill, Springdale Cinema Grill, and Razorback Cinema Grill and IMAX Theater in Fayetteville. Showtimes, tickets, and more information available at malco.com or the Malco app. This is Ozarks at Large. The Lunch Hour, KUAF's in-person live performance series, is coming back for a fourth edition. That's Friday, March 18th, with live music from Modeling and food from Arcega's Mill District. You can make reservations for the Limited Space Concert, which is free, by clicking on the Lunch Hour button at KUAF.com. Registration is required. Masks for the show in our lobby are recommended. The Lunch Hour is supported by George's Majestic Lounge Happy Hour Concerts. The February Lunch Hour, featuring a more with lunch provided by Secondhand Smoke, is available to watch right now on KUAF's YouTube channel. In advance of Amore's performance, she sat down with Nate Walls, the owner and culinary force behind Secondhand Smoke, KUAF's Jasper Logan, and Cerinthia McLennan, host of the upcoming KUAF-produced podcast, The Space. They all decided to talk about getting started with a career, perseverance, self-confidence, and the ability to recognize opportunity. Jasper asked her more about her music and about sharing herself in that music. We all have a story, but, you know, we can't be afraid of telling that story. And so when you do tell that story, make sure that people are able to um, experience it from beginning to end. You don't want to give them bits and pieces, right? Like when you go to Six Flags or something on a roller coaster ride, you want to be able to go through the loop-de-loops, you want to go through the like the drop, like you want to experience the whole thing. And mm. um, just giving people that, uh, it just, it's honestly a blessing because somebody sees you for what you're worth. Like, they see the value within you. So it's just dope. That's real. Well, the Six Flags was a dead giveaway from where you're from. <laughs> I mean, I guess you could be from other places, but you are from Dallas. I am from Dallas. Yes, ma'am. How long have you been here? So I actually moved here my junior year of high school. Mm-hmm. And so I want to actually give a shout out to you, but a huge shout out to X for kind of Xavier Smith. He does photography. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, when I moved out here, we went to church together or whatever, but... I was only out here for like three to four years and then I went back home. But I recently moved back 
it's been like an official full year. But he kind of introduced me to the DJ, DJ Tywalker. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that's how I met Jasper. And so I was just like, okay, bro, like, how can I, like, you know, get myself involved without being, like, you know, too headstrong? But they just kind of came, came to me. And then it's just being from Dallas is like... You have to adapt. The city life out here is like a lot slower. Way slower. And so yeah. it's like, you're going to have to adjust to the pace of, of, of Fayetteville. And so I'm just, you know, going with the flow, bro. Like, mm-hmm. that's it. Well, I'm thankful you're here because I'm from here. Okay. I might be the only one at this table that's actually from Fayetteville. Yeah. You're from Fayetteville. Yeah. Okay. And so, like, here, there's not that many black artists that were like coming out that were like good. No shade to anyone that was out back then, but like a lot of people have come to Northwest Arkansas and like brought their talents and their skills here. And like, I'm just thankful that for that. Mm-hmm. And you also like represent where you're from still and are so proud of that. And I like that too. Jasper does the same thing. Yeah, for sure. It's, mm-hmm. You got to put your city on the map, but you know, embrace the people that are supporting you where you mm-hmm. at. So, you know, it's just, it's a blessing. It is. That's real. That's real. Well, Nate, I, we, before we started filming, I told you that I had your food for the first time at the club. Yeah. <laughs> can, you, can you tell that story again? Because it was a good story about how you started out up here. Like, we just uh, started uh, knocking on doors. I, you know, I had a vision of doing my thing like a politician. You know, you know, I'm knocking on doors. I'm hugging babies and all that. Just <laughs> and so... And so I knocked, um, I went up to KISS 105 mm-hmm. um, um, and just knocked on the door. Had a whole bunch of, just some uh, great uh, barbecue, ribs, chicken, slaw, the whole nine yards, and Noel Sosa. Um, it was like, hey, bro, you can't just walk in here, man. It don't work that way. <laughs> and I was like, all right, all right. And so, and so I just kind of shoved the food in there before he kicked me out. And, uh, and, and like, I almost got home and he's like, bro, get your butt up here, like right now. And so it started with the club scene. And at that time, Kiss and WA was really involved in the club, the uh, the showcases, the hip hop showcases, mm-hmm. even even stuff involved with women rappers. Mm-hmm. And so uh, oh, we started selling food and their vending and, and just meeting different kinds of people. And I think that's part of the whole idea of meeting people where they are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Well, that was great for me because I heard it on the radio. They're like, they were doing a party. I'm like, ah, I'm not going to that. They said, featuring secondhand smoke. I said, wait a minute now. It's going to be food? <laughs> <laughs> I, I will be there. And it was very delicious. Thank I don't think so I've much. eaten food like out and about like that. But it was really good. Hey, thank you so much. And everybody was all shy. I'm like, come on, y'all. This is some good food. Come over here eat. And they devoured it. Yeah, you know, I kind of uh, was able to approach people in the way of, uh, you know, a person that come on over mm-hmm. and have some of this food because I've been cooking since I was like six years old, mm-hmm. and 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 my mom had uh, what they uh, used to call a juke joint, and it was sell beer and yeah. then uh, have soul food. So I was raised on soul food, and I was always chopping up stuff and and just meeting all kind of people. Um, and it kind of reminded me of that, you know. Mm-hmm. And so it was, it was just, I, I, you know, I met a lot of good people, you know, and the, and the narrative was broken, the narrative that you can't go 
out and you can't be contactable mm -hmm. with people. You just sell the food and that's the end of it. That's kind of why I do catering because mm. it's groups of people yeah. and, and it's not just like mechanical. It's, yeah. it's like I'm feeding this entire event mm -hmm. and I just love that to death. That is a good feeling. So both of y'all talked about kind of like meeting strategic people in the area that kind of helped you like get a foot in the door. Uh, I want to talk about like the whole process of like getting a foot in a door here in Northwest Arkansas. I know for like hip hop, mm -hmm. it's hard. Like Man. we had to create our own spaces. We had to like, you know, turn gallery works, gallery shops into like venues. And so like, I'm curious too, like uh, for you, Nate, for like food, like what, what would you say the hardest part uh, is about like getting into this area in terms of like starting a business, in terms of like getting word out about your your business and your food, and like in terms of even being black um, yeah. in this area. So talk to me about some of the like hardships that you've had to like see trying to get your foot in the door. Uh, so when I first started, you know, um, I didn't want to be like a black cook. You know, um, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna feed my community that way. In the black community, I went straight to the uh, rich people's uh, residence. You know what I'm saying? And um, I had incidents where I caught, you know, I was called the N word, door slam, they calling the police, and all those kinds of things. But but I knew that I wasn't gonna take it personal mm -hmm. because I know people from all kind of races. And and they always been good to me, mm. always been good to me. So you can't uh, just uh, brush with that broad brush, you know what I'm saying? Paint with yeah. that broad brush. And so uh, we kept on doing it. Um, and and I was like at the end of my rope, just getting really frustrated. And and it was this big campaign uh, event, and somebody canceled. Uh, thank God. And mm. then um, I came. Uh, the organizer said, hey, Nate, you want to do this? It don't pay no money. I was like, huh? <laughs> it, don't, it don't pay no money. I was like, inside my head, I remember what somebody said, you got to invest in yourself. And so I did that, and people just loved it. Mm. Because it wasn't like a ribs. It wasn't just ribs. It wasn't just barbecue. It was... It was a lot of different other stuff, and people can relate across the board too. So I was just fortunate to be in the right place at the right time. But but you always want to be challenged. You can't uh, uh, grow in a comfortable place. It's mm -hmm. impossible. Mm -hmm. Yes, sir. Yeah. Impossible. So you you sort of took those hardships, the, that like uncomfortableness, and it kind of like made you like stronger, made you keep believing in yourself, and made you like dig in and be like, all right, now nah, like I gotta I yeah. gotta get this done. I think we got a tendency of just staying within our comfort zone. Yeah. Like, I see that uh, from a lot of businesses, especially black businesses. Uh, they do business with people they know. Yeah. yeah. You know, and a lot of times that will, it can work to your detriment. Mm -hmm. so, so I tried to go outside of that. Um, if I didn't get a hundred no's, then I wasn't working hard enough. <laughs> you know, so I wanted to get all of that. And I started getting calls, and people uh, started saying, uh, "This guy doesn't give up," you know. And mm. and 
and I want you to see where I come from. Mm-hmm. You know, and my mom used to cook for everybody, the church, uh, white people, uh, uh, soul food. Yeah. And she said, you can't be a one trick pony. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I've always prided uh, myself in not being one. And she was like the worst judge in the world. <laughs> <laughs> and she not only would throw out my meal, she would throw them at me. Oh, like, like, man, I'm talking about like messed up grits. I, uh, I'm like, oh my God, I'm in a blues song. You know what I'm saying? Mama Dukes. So yeah, yeah. So, so, <laughs> so man, I just, I just judge myself uh, so much, and mm. I try to uh, pour into uh, people, especially young people. Yeah. That. That I need you to know how to make yourself marketable, yeah. how to get out your comfort zone, mm-hmm. and have value in yourself. That's how you know what to charge people. Mm-hmm. If you don't value yourself and they don't see that, then they're going to give you a uh, bottom because they're looking for a deal, too. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, That's you're real. pouring into this young person for sure. I'm <laughs> glad this is recorded so I can look at this later. <laughs> Amor, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you the same question. Like, you know, what what are some of the hardships that you've noticed, even in your short time being back and like trying to like get into that that hip hop scene that's trying to break Ooh. open? Like, what what's some of the hard th- the things that you've noticed? Um, honestly, Nate said it. It's uh consistency, like believing in yourself enough that mm. it's like, and you and I was chopping it up about this. Believing in yourself enough that. You value yourself that all you need is that one person that say, bro, you're dope. Like, your food is good. Your music is good. Like, how can I hear more? How can I get more of this? And so with the door being slammed in your face, it's like, okay, cool. No biggie, no problem. I'll go to somebody else because somebody else is willing to say, I want what you have. And seeing that value is like, okay, you gonna have to do free shows. I was doing open mic nights. Yeah. I was yeah. out there and like so back in Dallas, the scene is so um, I don't wanna say claustrophobic, but everybody's trying to do music. Like yep. just because that's what the narrative is pushed. Like either you a rapper, you gotta make this money, you have to have these jewelry blinking. That's not the case, right? Like follow what your happiness is, but out there, like Open mic nights, you have people who are like, oh, these are my fan favorites. Like, I only want to hear this person or, nah, like, we're going to put you on the sign-up list, but you're going to go at the very end type. Like, And I'm like, bro, like, give everybody the opportunity to to showcase their talent because we're all worthy of something. Mm-hmm. Um, but coming out here, funny story, I did not want to come to Juneteenth, bro. So I met <laughs> Jasper yeah. at Juneteenth, and I was in a very bad mental place. Like, wow. I wanted to stay at home. I didn't want to get out the bed. Um, it was just very difficult. And my mom, shout out to my mom, well, you know, she <laughs> come through. She was like, I'm invite you out to Juneteenth. You don't have to go, but, you know, it's pretty outside, you know, come through. So I was like, all right. So it took me a while. I contemplated, and then I finally popped up, and she knew the gentleman that was hosting the show. And so I guess he had a slot, and he was like, oh, you do music? And, you know, how mamas be, my baby can do it. (laughs) So I was like, okay, never get outside my comfort zone because I can get a little Mm. bit shy, and it's like, 
embrace the light that God gives you. If that's podcast, if that's cooking, if that's rapping, like God gave everybody something, embrace it. And so I was like, all right, bro, I'm going to just do it. And I always keep my music on me at all times. So just in case the opportunity presents itself, you got to be ready. So So you didn't even, like, you didn't, it wasn't in your head that you were going there to perform. No. That's crazy. At all, bro. And so when I saw the DJ, I was like, bro, I just met him at the skating rink last week. And so he was like, yo, what's good? You you about to perform? And I'm like, yeah, they got me to sign up. So I'm here. (laughs) And, um... Uh, I ended up performing, and it was one of the best opportunities that I could have ever, like, made because it put me in this light that somebody saw my worth, somebody saw my value, and I had to dig deep through that pain. Like, Mm. you have to be uncomfortable to get where you want to go. And, bro, when I tell you, it doesn't matter in that current moment how you may feel. Once you do it, the the in the long run it's so beneficial like it's so so beneficial you just got to keep pushing through the musician amor sat down with KUAF's Jasper Logan for that conversation recorded at and by Lens Audio on the Fayetteville Square it was part of last month's lunch hour event her performance in the KUAF lobby can be viewed right now by going to the KUAF YouTube channel. We also heard in that conversation Nate Walls, the owner and chef at Secondhand Smoke, the caterer for the February lunch hour, and Cerinthia McLennan, the host of the soon-to-be-released KUAF podcast, The Space. The Space is an ever-changing place where she's going to share her favorite things, places, and people, and will invite listeners like you to do the same. The first episode will drop very soon. Stay tuned. We'll have details. And speaking of first episodes, the first episode of The Future of Money is ready. Each edition will help us understand digital currency, blockchain, and, well, the future of money. This new KUAF podcast, produced by Lee Wood, sounds like this. This is The Future of Money, a podcast where we hope to educate and get educated about the new world of blockchain and digital money. My name is Eric Denbor, and I will be your host. Well, I want to start by saying this is the future. Uh, blockchain, which I have been, you know, engulfed in for five or six years, uh, I have noticed that it's it's bringing a truth to internet that we desperately need. And blockchain works in such a way that it's it's almost like a a, a train moving forward, and uh, this this train has cabisses, and you can put things in the cabooses, but you can't take anything out. You can go back and look at it, but you can't change it, which becomes a truth. Uh, Each block that is made or each caboose that is filled with information, uh, it it takes 10 minutes to create one. And then the, the person that had mined the block, so to speak, he won't get paid until the sixth block is made, which is an hour. Well, going forward on this train, so to speak, uh, one hour doesn't seem to be a very long time, but to reverse it, it takes a lot, a lot of computer power and a lot of years to create that. So you can then start asking yourself, is it worth for me when I've actually won this block and, and won those bitcoins? Is it worth for me to spend all of that money just to change one transaction in a block that is made maybe yesterday? Because the computer power to do that, it can take millions of years. So it's not worth it.
But to understand this, you have to understand it, it's built on truth. And one of the things that I really like about this is that if we can move internet into a truth area, then whatever a politician said at uh, a meeting that will be recorded and end up on the blockchain somewhere, we can go back, you know, five years, 10 years or whatever, and it's there. Nobody can manipulate it. And in a world where we live in today, where you will have everything from fake news, and you can also go in and, uh, you know, uh, computerize someone speaking and saying right. something. Right, deep fakes have become Absolutely, s- yes. just ubiquitous. So we, we need to have the truth out there, which I think is the most important part of all of this. So this is an ongoing and uh, ever-growing conversation about this new world that which in, in which we will all live, and yes. we probably already do live in. We do. And yes. so we want um, as many people as possible to learn, to be curious, and to have agency yes, in absolutely. this new world. Yes. And no, there are no silly or stupid questions. All right. Thank you so much, Eric. We'll talk to you next time. All right. Thank you. You can send in your questions about cryptocurrency, blockchain, NFTs, the metaverse, and more through the KUAF Connects line 479-575-6577 or through the KUAF Connects feature on our new app for iPhone and iPad. The Future of Money is just one of the new podcasts coming from KUAF as 2022 continues to unroll. All of our podcasts, from the podcast version of Ozarks at Large to Undisciplined, the collaboration between Ozarks at Large, KUAF, and the African and African-American Studies Program at the University of Arkansas, all of them can be found wherever you're already finding your podcasts. KUAF is supported by Temple Live Entertainment and Events in Fort Smith, presenting American blues guitarist and singer Tab Benoit, live at the Temple Thursday, March 10th, and welcoming singer-songwriter Ray Wiley Hubbard Friday, March 11th. Seating is limited. Tickets are available at templelive.com. Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art in Bentonville offers the perfect destination to experience art, architecture, and 120 acres of Ozark nature. Visitors can explore the galleries, walk the trails, or participate in art-making programs. More information at crystalbridges.org. Tomorrow... On a Thursday, Ozarks at Large, the desire to give aid to charities helping Ukraine. How do you know your donation is going to the right place and actually helping? Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich will have that report for us. Plus, adapting the patronage model used by symphonies to support local music. Black Fret, based in Austin, Texas, is teaming up with House of Songs, based in Bentonville, to do that. And we'll learn more tomorrow at noon and 7 and anytime you want to listen when you subscribe to the Ozarks at Large podcast. How do you pick up your life and flee your country? One Ukrainian made a list to help others. Number five, you have to act fast. Don't panic. Keep the children in front of you. Let them go first. It is a scary moment, but it has to be survived. I'm Elsa Chang, Ukrainians helping each other evacuate. This afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. All Things Considered, this afternoon from 3 until 6 on KUAF, and you can always ask your smart speaker to please play KUAF to listen from anywhere. 
Warm weather season means a lot of music throughout our listening area. We're going to tell you about some of the live music you can experience this coming weekend when Timothy Dennis and I sit down inside the Harold and Blanchcock News Studio tomorrow. But I will tell you that the city of Springdale announced this week that their lineup for the Live at Turnbow concert series in the downtown outdoor dining district in Springdale is set. It begins April 28th with modeling the next act, actually, that will be part of our lunch hour. May 26th, the Jeff Horton Band. July 28th, Jukebox Confession. August 25th, House of Songs will present. On September 29th, Big Piff, and on October 27th, City Sessions presents. These are all free. They're in downtown Springdale. We'll keep you up to date with more live music as the warm weather returns for real. This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Bentonville, and Rudy. You can listen to KUAF anywhere you are by asking your smart speaker to please play KUAF. Timothy Dennis produced today's show in the aforementioned Harold and Blanchcock News Studio. Contributors on this Wednesday show included Jacqueline Froelich, Charlie Allison, the executive editor at the University of Arkansas Relations at the U of A, Jasper Logan, and Cerinthia McClellan. Lee Wood produces the Future of Money podcast. And this reminder, all KUAF podcasts, past, present, and future, can be found wherever you're already finding your favorite podcasts. The lunch hour conversations are recorded by the folks at Lens Audio, located on the Fayetteville Square. Our theme is written and performed by Daryl Sean. You can find Daryl performing live every Monday through Friday afternoon on his Facebook and Instagram feeds. And you can also find out more about Daryl wherever you find out more about music. You can find out more about Ozarks at Large, including finding past editions, full editions of our show, and individual stories, interviews, and features by going to OzarksAtLarge.com. And with those individual features, stories, and interviews are links that allow you to share them with people you think would be interested through social media or through email. That's at OzarksAtLarge.com. We'll be back with you tomorrow at noon and 7 for a Thursday edition of Ozarks at Large. From the Carver Center for Public Radio in downtown Fayetteville, I'm Kyle Kellums. Thank you so much for being with us. We'll talk again very soon.